0: You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com.
1: I think what one thing Richard Nixon realized, and I think with the Nixon tapes, you can always cherry pick something to support almost any theory. But I think that when you look at kind of a sufficient sample size, there's another parallel that I see, which is that you know some people today say, could we have won the war? Could Nixon have somehow altered strategy and won the war. I think Nixon understands what does it mean to win the war in Vietnam. What is the definition of success or victory in Vietnam? And I think similarly, you look at Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, I think we've yet to see any politician articulate what it means to have been successful in those places. We know what failure looks like, but I think it's anything but clear what victory or success would have looked like. (laughs)
0: In the summer of 1968, Richard Nixon won the Republican nomination for president and Lyndon Johnson called him to congratulate him. Nick, Hello, Mr. President. How
2: are you? Well, I'm just fine to have had any sleep, but you know how uh, right. that is. I sure do, and I give you my congratulations and my sympathy. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, isn't that the truth? Johnson never liked or trusted Nixon.
3: goes way back to the time he was in the Senate. And Nixon was in the Senate.
2: Dick, yes, I want to uh, uh, keep in close touch with you. We're both supposed to be great political animals, and I think it's awfully important dealing with these comments for the next four months to be uh, uh, completely informed with the same facts, and then we can do whatever.
0: Bridging the Political Gap, I'm Randall Wallace, and you just got done listening to Joseph Califano talk about Lyndon Johnson's strong dislike for Richard Nixon. Uh, at the time, Nixon had just won the Republican uh, nomination, and Johnson was calling to congratulate him. We're going to come back to this tape a little later because I want you to see some of what happens with these documentaries that you've, you've been watching. But uh, we're going to move on at the moment to taking a look at one of the chief accusers of the Chenault affair, uh, MSNBC, and Rachel Maddow. She put a TV special together. That went through and made a lots of claims and 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 laid out a case of treason. She went out of her way to make Nixon look just as sinister as she could make it, and look like, of course, that he would, had committed treason. But we're going to go through that special, and I'm also going to take you to an article written at, by Real Clear Politics, um, titled "Don't Blame Nixon for Scuttled Peace Overture." It was written by Jack Tory in 2015, and we're also going to look at an article uh, from the Nixon Foundation and some other historical things that I have to start to balance this out a little bit. Because even Richard Nixon deserves a fair assessment and look. And this China affair has a lot of gaping holes in the story.
4: Nixon leads in the polls, but his White House dreams are haunted by LBJ's progress toward ending the war. Nixon worries about the, the
5: prospect of an October surprise. That peace is being negotiated, that it's
4: in hand and that it boosts the prospects of Hubert Humphrey. Mid-October, Lyndon Johnson fuels Nixon's worst fear.
2: Who is that speaking? Dick, is that you? I'm on. Hubert, are you on? Yes, sir.
4: In a conference call, LBJ updates the presidential candidates confidentially on a big breakthrough in the negotiations. North Vietnam, at last, is willing to talk with South Vietnam.
2: This is an absolute confidence because any speeches or any comments referring to the
3: substance of these matters would be injurious to your country. After all this work all year, Johnson finally had a package that the North Vietnamese would accept, and he was selling it to the South Vietnamese.
0: Now, if you ever wondered how the breakthrough happened, Jack Torrey, in his article for Real Real Clear Politics, writes, In late October, leaders in the Kremlin alarmed at the thought of a Nixon presidency successfully pressed Hanoi to include Saigon in the talks. That seemed to break the deadlock.
4: Nixon gets a top-secret briefing from the commander-in-chief on his progress toward peace. And what does Nixon do? He betrays the president and the nation.
0: Wow, now that, that sounds pretty harsh, even coming from her. But let's backtrack a little bit. Bryce Harlow, an advisor to President Nixon, had an inside track, and he had told Nixon about the same time as this conference call that Johnson intended to uh, call a bombing halt and try to help Hubert Humphrey. In the World Politics article, Jack Torrey writes, Nixon had a good reason for suspecting the bombing halt was in part designed to help Humphrey. Nixon campaign advisor Bryce Harlow told Nixon in mid-October that Johnson, encouraged by Clifford and Ball, would announce a bombing halt on the eve of the election. In his oral interview with the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, Harlow said he had a double agent working in the White House. I knew about every meeting they held. I knew who attended the meetings. I knew what their next move was going to be. Harlow said he told Nixon, Boss, he's going to dump on you. To which Nixon replied, he promised me he would not. He has sworn he would not. Now, they're talking about Lyndon Johnson there. They're having a hell of a time with the Joint Chiefs, Harlow said, he told Nixon. Lyndon is bringing them around. He's twisting and turning it so they'll go with it. He's forcing them to go with it. He can't have them repudiate it. That's where it is right now, the Chiefs. As soon as he gets them over and the time is right, he's going to dump on you. That's the plan. Harlow tried to preempt Johnson by leaking the president's plan to Merriman Smith, the White House correspondent for the United Press International. Smith discounted Harlow, saying Johnson had personally assured him he would keep foreign policy out of the election. After Johnson announced the bombing halt on October 31st, Smith telephoned Harlow at 2 in the morning. Drunk as a hoot owl, he had that problem, he said. I just want to apologize. The son of a bitch lied to me, he lied to you, and he lied to Nixon. He did exactly what you said, and I apologize from the bottom of my heart. So Nixon's got plenty of reason to, to be upset and to be looking at what's going on as a play in the election.
4: After a rally in Ohio, Nixon makes a late-night call to his top lieutenant, H.R. Haldeman, and he orders him
1: to pull the trigger on their scheme. And how do we know this? We have the notes taken by Nixon's campaign chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman.
5: It's definitely a smoking gun as regards Richard Nixon's direct
6: involvement in actions. Nixon's asking about how to throw a monkey wrench into the process,
0: and he's ordering Haldeman to make sure Anna Chennault stays active.
5: Nixon had always denied any personal knowledge of Anishinaabe's behavior. And wow, all of a sudden, here he is in Haldeman's notes saying, Keep Anishinaabe working on the South Vietnamese. Any way else we can monkey wrench Johnson's initiatives. There was no one casual remark, it's a whole battle plan.
0: Now, the person we just listened to is J.A. Farrell. He wrote a book called Nixon, The Life. And I've actually read parts of this book, and it's a pretty good book. Um, but he's the one who lays out this claim of a battle plan, and, and he's the one who found the notes and, uh, and, and goes through them. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at those notes now, and we're going to take a look at an, or an article that, I, that we use from uh, the Nixon Foundation. I know people who have these hang-ups about the Nixon Foundation, but it's a great source uh, for information about Richard Nixon, and this article counteracts a lot of what is in these claims, because you've got people saying now that they interfered in the peace process uh, to, to stop the South Vietnamese from coming to, to be involved in the negotiation that could have brought peace to Vietnam. That's sort of the story that you hear out here. But, and they got Anna Chenault, who was a, a fundraiser for President Nixon, to, to go do that. That's, that's kind of the story, and that's what the feral implication is. The problem with this story is really simple. The South Vietnamese can read, and the South Vietnamese can watch TV. And being that they can do these things, they can figure out pretty easily who's going to be the better deal for them, uh, Hubert Humphrey or Richard Nixon. I used to have an old saying when I was involved in politics that was pretty clearly, if it sounds stupid, crazy, or complicated, it usually is. And something that's kind of obvious here is that that, that they don't need Anna Chennault or anybody else to come tell them uh, that that Richard Nixon is going to be a better deal for them, and they don't want to do this negotiations. I have a long back and forth on Facebook. I'm a member of several groups, and, and I had a chance to talk to Luke Nicker He is the leading authority on Richard Nixon. He a, he uh, runs the tape site has tra- and wrote uh, four books on President Nixon. And he wrote on this Facebook page an interesting thing. He said, if you look at the HRH notes, carefully. I don't think they say anything important or definitive. For one, they documented a conversation that occurred as Nixon was worried that LBJ was going to attempt a political gambit just before the election. The notes say Nixon should use friends on the Hill to blast LBJ for being so partisan. Indeed, they say, to keep Chenault working on South Vietnam. But what does that mean? At the time, she was traveling the country giving speeches about the future of Asia. She had no influence in Saigon, which knew her well and finally if the notes are supposed to be evidence of something terrible that Nixon did then what exactly happened after the notes were written what was Chenault told to do what did she then do and how did it influence the South Vietnamese I have yet to find a single piece of evidence that anything occurred now Luke Nickner runs the nixontapes.org site he's listened to all the tapes he's written four books on Nixon or or, or peripherally about Nixon one two of them were trans transcribing uh, the tapes. The in, there were two bestsellers. He wrote one on Nixon in your Euro, in Europe, and you're going to be hearing from him in our next season um, on some of his lectures on that subject. And he wrote a book on Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the ambassador to Vietnam under Kennedy and Johnson, who was a Republican, and he was Richard Nixon's running mate in 1960. So I would say that Mr. Nectar knows what he is talking about. So let's take a look at the notes and what Mr. Farrell is saying and what the actual, uh, another interpretation of those notes are. In the article from the Nixon Foundation, they write, Nixon biographer Farrell misinterprets a word and draws the wrong conclusion in his recent book, Richard Nixon, The Life. Journalist biographer John A. Farrell claims to have found a hereto overlooked document that proves the contention that Richard Nixon, as a presidential candidate in 1968, subverted President Johnson's plans to begin peace talks with with the North Vietnamese government in Paris. As Mr. Farrell described in a New York Times op-ed, a newfound cachet of notes left by H.R. Haldeman, Nixon's closest aide, shows that Nixon directed his campaign efforts to scuttle the peace talks, which he feared could give his opponent, Vice President Hubert H. Humphrey, an edge in the 1968 election. On October 22, 1968, he ordered Hallerman to monkey wrench the initiative. And Mr. Farrell states that this, is, that this may be more reprehensible than anything Nixon did in Watergate. Now, this is a very serious charge, has been almost unanimously and uncritically accepted by the book's reviewers and by many reporters and writers. But an alternate interpretation of the Halderman notes, one more rooted in their actual words and the context in which they appear, supports a different interpretation and indicates that Mr. Farrell has misinterpreted the document and overreached in his conclusions about it. The document Mr. Farrell found in the archives of the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California comprises of four pages of handwritten notes made by uh, Bob Halderman during a telephone conversation with candidate Nixon late in the night of October 22, 1968. Earlier that day, Nixon had received a memo from Bryce Harlow, a Washington insider known and respected both for the quality of his judgment and of his wide ranging contacts. The Harlow memo contained startling and disturbing news from a source high inside the Johnson White House. And we have just been talking about Bryce Harlow and uh, from the Tory article, if you recall. From the start of the 1968 presidential campaign, President Johnson had promised the competing candidates. Republican Nixon, Democrat Vice President Hubert Humphrey, and Independent Party Governor George Wallace, that he would treat them equally and that he would not do anything to influence the outcome of the election. He repeated these assurances as recently as the week before in a conference call on October 16th. And We're going to get to listen to that conference call. We're not going to do like a lot of people a lot of uh, presentations do where you get to listen to a snippet of it and all of it makes Nixon look bad. You're going to listen to the entire conversation. We're going to do that in our next episode. But in that call, LBJ also repeated his insistence that the North Vietnamese must meet the three preconditions he had laid down before any bombing halt could be considered, to stop shelling cities in South Vietnam, not take advantage of the halt to infiltrate the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, and agree to negotiate with the South Vietnamese government in Paris. But the memo that Nixon received from Harlow on the 22nd stated that, despite Johnson's claims... Quote, the president is driving exceedingly hard for a deal with North Vietnam. Expectation is that he is becoming almost pathologically eager for an excuse to order a bombing halt and, and will accept almost any arrangement. The memo concluded, Houseers still think they can pull the election out for uh, HHH, which is Hubert Humphrey, with this ploy. That's what's being attempted. Nixon had suspected that LBJ might produce some last-minute Vietnam surprise, as he had done before the congressional elections two years earlier. Now, eight days before the 1968 election, if Nixon wasn't surprised, he was, as he told Halderman, mad as hell. Now, that's not the end of it. There were other people talking and other people writing, and in this story that we have uh, from Jack Torrey, uh, he, talks, he quotes out of the memoirs of Clark Clifford, and he says, In his memoirs, Clifford acknowledges that by October of 1968, It was clear that it was too late for Johnson to negotiate an end to the long war in Vietnam, but it was not too late to get negotiations started, and it was clear that if such talks began before Election Day, they would help Humphrey. In an oral history for the Association of Diplomatic Studies and Training, the late Philip Habib, who served as an advisor to uh, Averill Harriman, acknowledged, Harriman was very anxious to get this done before the elections to avert, as he put it, the greatest disaster, Richard Nixon. That was the way he felt. So he was doing everything to get Humphrey elected. Now, let's talk about Mr. Harriman. Uh, He is not one of my favorite people, and I won't beat around the bush about it. There is a famous story about him that J.A. Farrell, of all people, the writer of this book and the guy that found these notes, wrote about in his own book about Mr. Harriman. On page 163 in Nixon, the Life, Dick and Pat had taken a step upward in the, in the capital's social strata, but McCarthy's debut and the bitterly-fought 1950 elections left irremediable wounds in Washington. Joseph Alsop was an influential columnist with a specialty in the U.S. foreign policy area whose regard Nixon coveted. The young senator was pleased to be invited to a dinner in the newsman's Georgetown home. But the evening was ruined when Averill Harriman, a friend of Helen Cahagan Douglas, arrived and seeing Nixon loudly declared, I will not break bread with that man. Alsepp's sister-in-law, another guest, was happy to see Nixon go. She found Dick and Pat uptight like two little dolls or the monitors of a high school dance. So you get a good taste of that condescending attitude of Mr. Averill Harriman. And this wasn't the only person who felt that way. You had Clark Clifford, who was also uh, anti-Nixon virulently, and George Ball, who I admire and think so much of, and so it troubles me to see that. But he also had um, an attitude, and they were willing to do whatever it took to stop Richard Nixon from, from getting elected. All right, let's get back, though, to the notes themselves. And we'll go back to the article to kind of lay out what is in it and what, actually the notes say in his quote, in his late night phone call Nixon issued a number of orders aimed at letting LBJ know his plans were no longer secret and to dissuade him from announcing a bombing halt so close to the election unless he was able to obtain the prerequisite guarantees from North Vietnam Haldeman wrote Nixon if conditions are met that J that's Johnson laid down then we would approve bomb pause And he instructs Halderman to have Harlow tell Republican Senate Minority Leader Everett Dirksen, who would dependably convey the message to Johnson, if don't get the three conditions in, we'll blast bomb halt. Now in is Nixon. Nixon considered the three conditions, which the North Vietnamese never met, essential, and that a bombing halt without them would endanger American lives and undermine American options. In military terms, the ability to continue bombing or even increase bombing amounted to a trump card. Nixon says that, quote, to give away our trump card without getting this much would be bad. Haldeman quotes Nixon. They're selling out SVN, which is South Vietnam, and leave the new administration to handle and make a communist Asia. Suddenly, armed with knowledge of Johnson's secret plans, thanks to Harlow's memo, Nixon wants his friend, Florida businessman B.B. Rosboza, to contact Florida Democratic Senator George Smathers and have him let LBJ know that N is going to blast him. The bets are off, and N is very disappointed. The section of the notes on which Mr. Farrell bases his contention that Nixon intended to monkey-wrench Johnson's plans for peace talks in Paris is headed REVN Bomb Halt News. For Mr. Farrell, the critical passage of Alderman's notes reads, REVN Bomb Halt News. Harlow slash have Dirksen and Tower blast this. Dirksen, call LBJ and brace him with this. Slash, any other way to monkey wrench it. Anything RN can do. All right, let's lay out what that means. The VN bomb halt news was Harlow's memo. Everett Dirksen was the Republican Senate Minority Leader. John Tower was a Republican Senator from Texas. Nixon's efforts were unavailing because nine days later, five days before the election, and without the North Vietnamese having agreed to the three conditions, President Johnson goes on TV and announced the bombing halt. Good evening, my fellow Americans.
2: I speak to you this evening about very important developments in our search for peace in Vietnam. When our representatives, Ambassador Harriman and Ambassador Vance, were sent to Paris, they were instructed to insist throughout the discussion that the legitimate elected government of South Vietnam must take its place in any serious negotiations affecting the future of South Vietnam. Therefore, our ambassadors, Harriman and Vance, made it abundantly clear to the representatives of North Vietnam in the beginning that, as I had indicated on the evening of March 31st, we would stop the bombing of North Vietnamese territory entirely when that would lead to prompt and productive talks. For a good many weeks, there was no movement, the talks at all. The talks appeared to really be deadlocked. Then, a few weeks ago, they entered a new and a very much more hopeful phase. Last Sunday evening, and throughout Monday, we began to get confirmation of the essential understanding that we had been seeking with the North Vietnamese on the critical issues between us for some time. Now, as a result of all of these developments, I have now ordered that all air, naval, and artillery bombardment of North Vietnam cease as of 8 a.m. Washington time, Friday morning. I have reached this decision on the basis of the developments in the Paris talks, and I have reached it in the belief that this action can lead to progress toward a peaceful settlement of the Vietnamese War.
4: The very next day after Nixon orders his chief of staff to monkey wrench it, to keep Anna Chennault on the job, telling Saigon to not go along with the peace talks, the very next day, Anna's friend, Bui South Vietnam's man in D.C., he wires his superiors back home in Saigon. He says this, quote, many Republican friends have contacted me and encouraged us to stand firm. U.S. intelligence intercepts that cable. Once President Johnson gets wind of the Republican interference, he orders the FBI to wiretap the Vietnamese embassy. October 30th, the FBI sends President Johnson a classified memo. Ambassador Ziem received a call from an unidentified woman, believed to be Anna Chenault.
1: Johnson is flabbergasted. He did not see this coming. Mrs. Chennault, you know.
2: Miss Chennault, she is kind of the go-between. She's young and attractive. I mean, she's a pretty good-looking girl. And she's around town. And she is uh, warning them uh, uh, to uh, uh, not get pulled in on this Johnson move. It's not totally unusual
5: that an American presidential candidate would have the go-between with a wartime ally. The issue is whether or not that representative is charged with taking steps to
1: undermine the government's policy. November 2nd, the FBI tapped the South Vietnamese embassy telephone and overheard Anna Chenault telling the South Vietnamese ambassador... Hold on, we're going to win. From President Tu's perspective, it's no little thing to defy the president
4: of the United States of America. But this gave him the confidence to go forward in front of his National Assembly and make
7: that speech.
2: This is where Anna Chenault is
4: important because she was saying, you know, if you defy Johnson, there is another... President, if you help him get elected, who would stand by you? Namely, Richard Nixon. President Thieu, America's ally, drops his own bombshell on LBJ. Quote, the government of South Vietnam regrets not to be able to participate in the present exploratory talks. South Vietnam's president sends a signal to Washington, loud and clear, three days before the American election. There will be no peace talks while Lyndon Johnson is in office. With the clock ticking down, Richard Nixon has sabotaged LBJ's quest to end the war. But one last twist remained to play out.
0: Now, there's more to this story about President Thu. In the Rookler Politics article, Jack Toy writes, In reality, there never was any chance Thu would participate in the talks on November of 1968, no matter what Nixon did or did not tell him. The declassified transcripts of Thu's meetings with his top advisors throughout October made clear that he would not agree to four-way talks in Paris with the NLF as a separate entity. That was not just some procedural objection on Saigon's part. By recognizing the NLF as a legitimate government, Thu was acknowledging it as a potential coalition partner, a stance Saigon had consistently rejected throughout the war. And there's more. Luke Nictor, who is on this Facebook page that I am on, and is a uh, the leading historian on uh, Richard Nixon, wrote in an exchange that I had with him that Thu had been very of Humphrey going back to late 1967 when the latter disrespected him during a private conversation while leading the U.S. delegate as the leading U.S. delegate to his inauguration and conveyed doubts about the future U.S. commitment to Vietnam. Unfortunately for Humphrey, he said those things never believing he would be a presidential candidate in only a matter of months. But Thur remembered it. You know, that's the kind of tidbit historical tidbit that matters when you're talking about a leader of a country at war uh, needing to trust somebody. Obviously, he's not going to trust Hubert Humphrey, who's talking about walking away and questioning the commitment, as opposed to Richard Nixon, a career anti-communist. He didn't need Anna Chenault to tell him anything.
2: Confidentially, because I think Three days before the election,
4: Lyndon Johnson strikes back. The president calls the Senate's top Republican, Everett Dirksen, with a message for Dick Nixon. Nixon's people, he says, are treading on dangerous ground. And the president has the goods to burn Agent Anna Chenault.
2: And uh, here's the latest information we got. The agent says that uh, she's just talked to the boss, and he says just hold on until after the election. When you hear
5: Johnson talking to Dirksen, you hear in Johnson this master politician who's used threatening tactics throughout the course of his political
3: career to achieve his political ends. It's classic Johnson. It's, It's classic. You know, get to the head of the Republican Party to try and get Nixon
2: to do this. Now I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign, right. and they ought to be doing this. This is treason. I know. They're contacting a foreign power in the middle of a war. That's a mistake, and it's a damn bad mistake. You just tell them that their people are around in this thing, and if they don't want it on the front pages, yeah. they better quit it. He's holding
5: out the prospect. Of going public with this explosive story. At the same time, you can hear Johnson's palpable anger and indignation that somebody would tamper
4: with the peace process that could end a war. Senator Dirksen delivers the message to the Nixon camp. The very next morning, Sunday, two days before the election, Bate the press. Richard Nixon launches his cover up
8: on live TV. I want to make it very clear in every one of my public statements and including in Meet the Press I stand with the President with regard to his efforts to get the Paris negotiations off dead center.
4: After making that very public lie Nixon doubles down on his cover up in a very private call. Uh, Mr. President? Yes? This, is Nixon. yes this conversation is a masterclass in political subtext. And subterfuge.
8: I just wanted you to know that uh, any uh, rumblings around about uh, somebody uh, trying to uh, sabotage Saigon
2: government attitude, they certainly have absolutely no credibility as far as I'm concerned. I'm very happy to hear that, Dick, because that is taking place. Now,
1: here's, here's the history of it. I didn't want to call you. It, got two I, guys sort of bluffing each other. Johnson wants Nixon to think. He's got the goods on Nixon himself. Nixon wants Johnson to think he has nothing to do with this. My God, I would never do anything to encourage, you know, I
8: mean, got not to come to the table. But good God, we want them over Paris. We've got to get them to Paris or you can't have a peace.
5: LBJ knew there was collusion with the South Vietnamese government to keep them from negotiating a peace. What LBJ couldn't prove definitively was that Nixon was involved. Some of the old China lobby
1: are going around uh, and implying... Anyone with half a brain knows that Richard Nixon is behind this effort to sabotage the peace talks because the South Vietnamese would not listen to a fundraiser and a chenault. Unless they knew for sure that she was speaking for Nixon. You just see
2: it, your people don't tell the South Vietnamese that they're going to get any better deal out of the United States
4: government. One fact remained unspoken, but well understood. If this story hit the news, Richard Nixon's White House dreams would explode in scandal.
0: Now, that's all very melodramatic, but... Let's take a look at the real situation that was going on in Vietnam at the time. If you, according to the Real Clear Politics article that we've been using uh, for part of this text, um, he talks about a meeting he had with the University of Kentucky historian Lynn Hang Nguyen, and I apologize for slaughtering her name, but she is the author of a book called Hanoi's War, and she examined Hanoi's Foreign Ministry records. To quote him, she told me in an interview this year that Lee Duan, quote, wasn't ready to negotiate seriously until the summer of 1972, when American air power and South Vietnamese ground forces smashed Hanoi's Easter offensive. Professor DeJuan, who is not a Nixon admirer, pointed out Lee Lee Duan's always believed negotiations at Geneva in 1954 were a mistake, and that led to the partition of Vietnam, and he did not want to repeat that error. The irony is Lee Duan clearly emerged at the end of the s- 1968 as the winner in this game of high-level political intrigue that involved Washington, Saigon, Hanoi, and Moscow. Le Duan outmaneuvered Johnson, gaining a badly needed bombing halt in return for talks that had no chance of success. When Nixon took office in January of 1969, he was saddled with a bombing halt he did not want in peace talks in Paris that could not succeed except on Lee Duan's intractable terms. In the weeks preceding election day, writes New Giant, intrigue permeated the corridors of power, not only in the United States, but also in the two Vietnams, as leaders in Saigon and Hanoi both tried to manipulate American electoral politics to further their own objectives in the war. Now, you got some other folks writing and talking too about this situation as the years have gone by. In this article as well, the late William Bundy, who served as Assistant Secretary of State in 1968 for Johnson, complained in page after page about Nixon's perfidy in in his book A Tangled Web before lamely admitting no great chance for peace was lost. And there is more to this story. There's a whole sequence of events that's happening here, and as the article points out, this sequence of events suggests that Thu and his advisors did not need any secret messages from Nixon to fear a Humphrey victory. All they had to do was read the newspapers, straight out of this Clear Politics article. In a highly publicized speech on September 30th in Salt Lake City, Utah, Humphrey broke with Johnson on the war. Humphrey pledged, quote,
9: President, I would stop the bombing of the North as an acceptable risk for peace, because I believe... It could lead to success in the negotiations and thereby shorten the war.
0: Humphrey would go on and say that he would, he would pointedly added that Hanoi had to respect the 17th parallel. Even more alarming for Saigon, according to this article, McGeorge Bundy, just two years removed from the White House National Security Advisor role proposed on October 12th an unconditional halt to the bombing campaign and the withdrawal of substantial numbers of U.S. forces beginning in 1969. Saigon was horrified at these two speeches. William Bundy, who was George McGeorge's older brother, called Boi Nguyên, the South Vietnamese ambassador to the United States. To quote, tell him in a lighthearted key that my brother's remarks reflected no prior discussion with me whatever and had not been known to me in any way before delivery and did not reflect in any way the point of view of the administration or for what it might be worth my own personal point of view. The South Vietnamese had plenty of reason to be concerned about a Hubert Humphrey victory. They didn't need Richard Nixon to tell them anything. And, And that is where a lot of this falls apart. Now, let's take a look at one other little thing, because I think it's important that you feel confident about who's telling you what. If you listen, because we're going to talk about this next season, Sally Quinn, Ben Bradley, the vaulted editor of the Washington Post, the great newspaper that is supposed to be telling you just the news, because, you know, democracy dies in darkness. Um, They're supposed to be fair and balanced and reporting the news and you make up your mind. But here's her opinion of Richard Nixon.
7: I suspect that she didn't like Nixon because nobody liked Nixon, but she got burned. You know, if you lie down with dogs, you get up
0: with fleas. And that brings me to Joseph Califano again. As you remember, he introduced our show today uh, as part of the conversation with President Nixon. And President uh, or then Vice President Nixon, the Republican nominee, and Lyndon Johnson. I'm gonna let you make up your mind.
3: Johnson never liked or trusted Nixon. Goes way back to the time he was in the Senate and Nixon was in the Senate.
0: Yeah, Johnson dislikes uh, Nixon. That's what Mr. Califano just told you. Let me quote from The Vantage Point by Lyndon Johnson Perspectives. Of the presidency 1963-1969 on page 547 and 548. Lyndon Johnson. I never shared the intense dislike of Richard Nixon felt by many of my fellow Democrats. I had served with him in the House of Representatives and in the Senate and I was Senate Majority Leader during most of his term as President of the Senate. I considered him a much maligned and misunderstood man I looked upon Nixon as a tough, unyielding partisan and a shrewd politician, but always a man trying to do the best for his country as he saw it. I did, however, disagree strongly with his political philosophy. I believed that if he were elected, he would certainly try to undo many of the hard-won achievements of the new frontier and the great society.
7: President Hello, it's President
2: Johnson sir, on the line. Hello. Hello, Mr.
8: President. Well, you just called to wish you a merry Christmas.
2: <laughs> we are having one.
8: Right, at... I, I suppose you're up, aren't you? It's nine o'clock.
2: There, yes, we've got motorbikes going here, big wheels, dogs, and everything.
8: Yes, sir. That was a fine picture of you with the uh, the little boy in the paper. Well, thank you. That sir. Uh, the, it was the Lucy Lucy's boy, I think. Yeah. Yes, yes. You made it possible for Lynn, of uh, Linda
2: and her marine husband, to make sure you picked him up
8: and brought him back great I know well that was well, well anytime you know there's that's always that's what we have to have well you uh, hope you're feeling well you look good in the, the picture I you know you can't tell much about pictures no no I'm we're in uh, we're in Washington are going to try to see that we're like everybody else we're going to try to have dinner between football games. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think I, I think you're going to win. A, if if they win, they play in Dallas next, don't they? Right. I envy you, well, boy. Those are those are great kids. Good. good. Well, Merry Christmas. I guess you must be happy with all the grandchildren, there, huh? Right. Right. Good. Well, we, uh, we're so, uh, so glad that you're all together and that everybody's healthy. We thank you. All right. We hope that you all are having, uh, all the, just all the right. and all the, just the, the good, good, solid things. We'll get you ready for all the good. hard times that are coming up. <laughs> you tell, uh, now you tell Lyndon now that, you know, you're the only one to talk to him. Don't tell him not to, not to wear himself out. Keep, I will try. keep well. And, and, and uh, keep, and, and give our affection and warmth Yeah. We sure will. Bye. Goodbye. Yeah, I don't think he's quite up yet, but I'll I'll her as soon as I get him.
0: I tell you, you can just feel the hatred between the two and Johnson's hatred of Nixon just shining through that whole call, can't you?
9: (laughs) Nixon replaced Haldeman with Kissinger's former deputy. General Alexander Haig had been appointed the Army's vice chief of staff the previous year. The Washington Post's lawyer, Joe Califano, warned him he was stepping into a minefield. And he said, Al, for heaven's sakes, don't take this job because we've got Nixon. We're going to destroy him and you'll go with him. I
2: told him the other day that Joe Califano and them were shoving me. Well, now Joe Califano can't spell Vietnam. He's never been in one meeting with me. I'll let you
0: make up your own mind about what Mr. Califano is or isn't and how true his statement is based on what you've just heard. And I might add, it's kind of interesting what a small world it really is in who he's the lawyer for, the Washington Post, but perhaps that's for season four. So, was
4: it treason? Nixon worked surreptitiously with a foreign power to sabotage states and tilt a presidential election. Would that be treason? Fifty years later, that question, of course, has new and dismal relevance. But 50 years now, after Nixon did it, we have the benefit of explicit evidence. I have that uh, documented. Uh, They're not a question, but... Locked in the vaults of the Johnson Presidential Library, there is a secret folder. It's marked, do not open for 50 years. It's called, I kid you not, the X-File. You see, when Johnson left the presidency, he buried all of his evidence on the Chenault
10: affair. Johnson wanted all this evidence of the horrible things that Nixon was doing in this mysterious envelope to have the evidence to blackmail him with, if that was ever necessary. Tracking down LBJ's
4: X file became an obsession for President Nixon. Rumors swirled at the Nixon White House that LBJ's blackmail folder was locked up in a safe at a Washington think
6: tank. Get in, get in those files. safe, get in.
4: Well, Nixon's gang of thieves never did manage to steal the X-file, but one year later, that same bunch of crooks, the White House plumbers, they did try to pull off a somewhat similar caper, a bungled attempt to wiretap Democratic Party headquarters at the iconic Washington complex
8: known as Watergate. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow.
4: decades the American people have hoped that with the demise of President Richard Nixon we'd seen the end of that level of criminal scandal at the highest levels of our politics now we know that Nixon's criminal scheming included what the sitting president at the time believed to be treason by Nixon to get himself into the White House almost unimaginable at least it used to be
0: That certainly sounded pretty sinister and all that, and the evil Nixon's doing all this, but uh, there's like one problem. And this doesn't excuse Richard Nixon of wrongdoing in this case when it comes to the Brookings Institute. But he wasn't looking for the X-File because it'd make more sense for the X-File to be like at the bottom of the LBJ library, not in the middle of the Brookings Institute. But there's one other problem
8: about the uh, proposal to do the uh, firebombing at the Brookings Institution. As you know there is word to the effect that that was something that on one tape or another, which I have not heard, um, that you actually specifically asked for that. Not the firebombing necessarily, but asked for the Brookings Institution to be uh, covertly investigated. I have no recollection of authorizing a break-in at Brookings. I, however, uh, would not say Uh, that I did not express great concern about the fact that Brookings might have this, and that I did not express uh, a very great interest in trying to obtain those documents from Brookings, uh, uh, get them back uh, in some way if we possibly could. Uh, But here again, when you say you haven't heard the tape, I haven't heard it either, uh, the tape that you refer to, so we're now on the hearsay area. As far as I was concerned, however... Let me say that if I had learned, if I had evidence that Brookings did have it, if I had evidence that somebody at Brookings was going to put something out, uh, I would have taken very strong methods
9: uh, to, to get them back. One afternoon, a man who had been assigned to my staff came wide into my office and said, John, Chuck Colson wants me to firebomb the Brookings Institute. And I said, you've got to be kidding I said, what for? He said, well, there's some documents that they think are connected with the Pentagon Papers, and they want me to go in there, firebomb the place, and then make a burglary. I said, that's crazy. He said, I know it's crazy. As the Pentagon Papers became a bestseller, Nixon heard that
7: Ellsberg had gotten his hands on yet more secret documents, and that they were now in the possession of a Washington think tank, the Brookings Institution.
9: I was in the president's office one night and the president turned to me and he said, you get a hold of John Roachman and you tell him to get a hold of the Pentagon, to get a hold of the FBI, do whatever is necessary. I want those documents back from Brookings. The president's
7: private eye was told to case the joint. And they bring me in for this thing with, uh, with this uh, Brookings Institute. And I went in as a tourist
6: and I... Um, I reported by phone, no written report, that it was certainly a great-looking establishment. All marble halls well-guarded.
7: To get past the guards, Colson proposed to Ehrlichman an unorthodox approach.
2: He came up with this idea to uh, start a fire. And in the confusion of fighting the fire, somebody would go
9: in and lift these papers. I said, I don't care how you do it, the president wants the papers back. That's all I know. Word of
7: Colson's scheme reached the president's young counsel, John Dean. Two years later, Dean would bring down the Nixon administration by exposing its conspiracies, including
9: the one that was now brought to him. He said, Chuck Colson has got a scheme that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. He wants me to firebomb the Brookings Institute. I said, what are you talking about? So I immediately went in to see Ehrlichman told him of the absurdity of this uh, plan and scheme and found a very unruffled John Ehrlichman who sort of looked up over his glasses at me and, and, and raised his eyebrows and he said, well, maybe we should call it off.
11: And these two people, El, um, Les Gelb and Mort Halpert, had worked on the study. Their understanding was that two chapters were still sitting in the Brookings Institution. And you hear Nixon on a tape saying, God damn it, go in there and blow it up and get that safe.
2: Um, Air bomb the goddamn fire, place, I, he says. I, I
11: want it done on a... on a fevery basis, yes. he says at one point. Go in and get the goddamn files. So they had sent one of these Russian characters, Anthony Lazulich, he's one of my favorites, because he, <laughs> he was always doing something extremely stupid. Um, and he tasted he said, yeah, they got files. So the thing almost happened. And there's questions question where they got stopped by a guard. They had no files. They had no papers. They had nothing. But these things grew up in their minds, and they had to
7: act on them. Ten days later, the New York Times published another damaging leak. The story gave away the U.S. fallback position in nuclear missile negotiations with the Soviets. The president summoned Ehrlichman
9: and his protege, Bud Krogh. When I walked in, the president was standing up behind his desk. Then um, he started to pace back and forth, and he told me that he that this kind of
6: uh, uh, leak was intolerable; that we just could not stand any more of them.
2: I remember him slamming his fist into his hand, saying how dangerous this was, and it had to be stopped. He wanted lie detector tests given to everybody. He wanted the name of the guy who was responsible. He wanted telephone
8: taps. He wanted this and that and this and that. A lot of hyperbole, a lot of hubris in in the Oval Office.
7: The president's demand for lie detector tests on a massive scale was recorded like everything said in the Oval Office by the hidden taping system he had just installed. Nick's first target was his foreign policy staff. was how Ehrlichman noted the President's instructions.
0: Through all of that, if you'll notice, all they talk about are new portions of the Pentagon Papers that they didn't know where it was. At no point do they ever mention Anna Chenault, or the Chenault Affair, or the 1968 bombing halt, or anything other than the missing papers from the Pentagon Papers that they're trying to find. Now. I also included a little segment on the fallback position of, for our nuclear arms negotiations with the Soviets. There ain't anything more important that needs to be kept secret than your negotiating positions, and here they are being leaked. So you may not want to condone the behavior of, of talking about firebombing the Brooklyn Institute, and I'm not defending it here, but it makes a little bit of sense why Nixon might actually be upset considering that you've had a massive leak and theft of the of these Pentagon papers. Now you've got people leaking your, your fallback positions. And Nixon had a habit of flying off the handle and getting really angry and not meaning what he said. And at no point was the Brookings Institute ever burglarized. And while some of his staff did step over the line, it never happened. And that's the bottom line. And it was never about the 1968 Chenault affair. Now, when we come back, we're going to take a look at another aspect of the Chenault affair and of the Johnson presidency, the president's mental state, which, as you will learn, fluctuated from not just day to day or week to week, but hour to hour. And uh, it's a real issue, and the closer we get to the end of his term, the worse it gets. We're going to go back and take a look at a situation that happened early on in his term in 1960. As he approached becoming the nominee in his own right And we're going to listen to Richard Goodwin One of his closest assistants Who is going to talk about his relationship with Bill Moyers We're going to hear from George Reedy We're going to hear from Elliot Jameson Who was a a friend of his Who was in the room when Bobby Kennedy Tried to take the presidency away from him in, In 1960 And you're going to find These stories very similar When we come back in just a moment. Hi, this is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap, I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, RandallWallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast, and if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. (laughs)
10: Also, LBJ, people always said he had mood swings, but you'd never really see or hear them. You really hear them on these tapes. Uh, case in point, Democratic Convention, 1964, when LBJ is so upset by criticism of him, but more criticism in Time Magazine of Ladybird that he says, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to accept this nomination. Why don't we go back to Texas? And he fell into what can only be called a depression, which he was subject to, I think, throughout his life. And Lady Bird, you just hear it on these tapes, is the one person who could pull him out of it. And she says to him, essentially, you do that, you'll essentially being conceding what your critics are saying.
5: Boy, I, I could not agree more with what I think all three of you are getting at. These tapes are Wonderful for what they tell us about LBJ's approach to policy and the policymaking process, but the most memorable parts are often the bits of information, the bits of insight into his personal life, his personality, the way that he conducted himself day in and
0: Michael Beschloss is right. These tapes are essential in understanding Lyndon Johnson, and they're essential in understanding the Chennault affair because what they will show you is Johnson's problem. With paranoia and delusions and issues where he just makes things up to come around to the to the way he, he thinks, and you'll see this in some of these phone calls, including the one where he meets uh, or talks to all of the presidential candidates. He's already laying the groundwork for somebody's going to screw this up. In a lot of ways, because I think he knows there's nothing really here. There's no peace talk to put together, um, and and that's that's the thing that I think people. Don't seem to realize that the Paris Peace Talks would go on into February of the next year, arguing about the shape of the table. But I'm going to let you. We're going to step back in time now to 1964, as he's about to become to accept the presidential nomination. This is the story that Michael Beschloss is talking about. You're going to hear George Reedy here. um, You're going to hear one of his secretaries talking about these days around the August. Twenty fifth and twenty sixth of nineteen sixty four at the Democratic convention. He's in Washington watching it. He's got multiple issues going on. There was this uh, attack by the press on Lady Bird. There's this uh, the Mississippi Freedom Delegation's fighting to try to get their uh, seated in the and the at the convention on the floor. Uh, and then there's his own insecurities that crop up. Uh, because he's been fighting with Robert Kennedy trying to figure out a way to keep Robert Kennedy from getting on the ticket, as we discussed in an earlier episode. And you'll see all this as it as it kind of morphs. and you're gonna hear uh, from Robert Goodman and his own assessments of Lyndon Johnson. And these such problems with paranoia and depression and uh, manic behavior and depressive behavior, all this stuff, it gets worse. As we get closer, and you got to remember the Chennault affair is coming four days, five days, before the presidential election in 68, after he's already pulled out of the election, and, and, and you've had all these assassinations, and, and, and he's the stress of everything coming apart in 68. These things get worse, and you're going to hear from advisors in that time period, uh, when we get done uh, looking at, at these interviews, and, and listening to him from 64, we're going to move you to 68, and you're going to hear these advisors who are talking about the issues there. And it's funny to me how historians and the press are always talking about his paranoia, his delusions, his issues, and that he's all over the place, except when it's the Chenault affair, and then he's just fine. And that, I think, is something that stands out that we need to, to really take a look at. And let me preface all of this by saying this because I, I don't want anybody to, to, to think otherwise. I like Lyndon Johnson, and I admire Lyndon Johnson. I'm a Republican not maybe didn't always agree with the Great Society, but I believe the man's heart was in the right place. And I certainly believe he was wholly and completely right on civil rights. And there are parts of, of the Great Society that are part of that uh, that that floor that we've provided for people in this country that began with him. And I don't have a problem with having a safety net there for, for some people and and you know there's it's hard to argue that Lyndon Johnson wasn't a really good legislator and a really good president even if you disagree with huge parts of the great society and of course the Vietnam policy that he implemented that I'm actually sympathetic with him about because of the way he inherited this job and the advisors that were pushing him so I want to say all of that before we get into really discussing what I believe is a case that he had some level of mental illness and That ought to be considered when you're talking about the Chenault Affair and dumping off treason on Richard Nixon. These interviews are from a Learning Channel uh, documentary about the Johnson tapes and then some from a CNN uh, documentary with Frank Sesno as well. So here we go. Let's listen to... These are Johnson advisors, uh, Richard Goodman and uh, George Reedy and his former secretary, Mrs. Hamer, Uh, and then, of course, President Johnson himself.
9: Johnson's persecution complex was alarming his own people, who worried that his obsession with Kennedy was verging on mental instability. Two of them, Bill Moyers and Richard Goodwin, decided that their chief was having delusions, inventing enemies. Bobby was at the
3: center of the, whatever paranoia there was, clearly. He was the one who was the ringleader of the opposition trying to bring Johnson down. And I began to discuss it with Bill Moyers, and uh, he agreed with me. And uh, we began to worry about Johnson's sanity.
11: This was unusual. There were no people going in and out. And he had the door closed between our office and his That door, when he didn't have appointments, was usually open. And I remember that today because I went to the peephole two or three times to look through the peephole to see if he was all right. Here's what I think I'm going to say to them. On that fateful November day last year, I accept the responsibility of the President asking God's guidance and the help of all of our people. For nine months, I've carried on as effectively as I could. Our country faces grave dangers. These dangers must be faced and met by a united people under a leader they do not doubt. After 33 years of political life, most men acquire enemies as ships accumulate barnacles. The times require leadership about which there is no doubt, and a voice that men of all parties and sections in color can follow. I've learned after trying very hard that I'm not that voice or that leader. Therefore, that uh, no consideration be given to, uh, to
6: me because I'm absolutely unavailable. There was a quality to his voice. And my immediate reaction is, my God, he uh, must have having a brain hemorrhage or something. You know, the reasons that he was advancing were absolutely asinine. Blacks were not going to vote for Barry Goldwater. Jews were not going to vote for Barry Goldwater. Organized labor wasn't going to vote for Barry Goldwater. But this was absolutely ridiculous. And at that particular point, nobody could have defeated Lyndon Johnson. I think you could have run God almighty in the Republican ticket and Johnson would have won that year. And I don't want this power of the bomb, and I just don't want these decisions that men
11: required to make, and I don't want the conniving that's required. I don't want the disloyal that's around, I don't want the bumping and the inefficiencies. This will throw the nation quite an uproar, sir. Yeah, I think so. I think it's too late, sir. I know it's your decision because you're the in there any way that you can prove this? I'm not going to make it very long. I'm just about ready to sign it off. I'd uh, be glad to have you. I think, that, I think your statement is as good as it can be
7: mixed. Okay. Yes, Beloved, you are as brave a man as Harry Truman, or FDR, or Lincoln. You can go on to find some peace, some achievement amidst all the pain. You have been strong. Patient, determined to be beyond any words of mine to express, I honor you for it. So does most of the country. To step out now would be wrong for your country, and I can see nothing but a lonely wasteland for your future. In the final analysis, I can't carry any of the burdens you talk
11: of, so I know it's only your choice. I love you always, birds. An invitation to come in.
2: We sit with them a while and we wanted to sit in our own state. A so year and a half, the Freedom Party has got the, the, the seats of the regular Mississippi delegates and they're coming in taking them. Just put, I put security men around the Mississippi delegation, they just put a bunch of them and I let anybody come in and see. Them. You better do it now because you got a ride on right there, right quick, so somebody better
11: get
6: a get out in the lawn, and then he again reiterated his determination to quit. Except this time, he was using some very, shall I say, earthy language. Language that I wouldn't want to repeat in TV. In fact, certainly language I would not use in the presence of a lady. And my God, this time, he really frightened me. Because uh, he was so firm on it, so definite, so clear, he was going to tell them to take that blankety-blankety-blank job and uh, place it in a very improbable place. <laughs> and, the, uh, and by the time it was over, I went home that night in uh, a state of terror because I thought he meant it. I got up early the next morning, went down to the White House, and to my surprise, he was just acting as though it were a normal day. He didn't tell me he's going to go up there and accept the nomination, but he acted like a man that was. I came to the conclusion that he was probably a manic depressive. That he would alternate moods of extreme elation with moods of extreme depression. And sometimes four or five times in one day. We flew up to Atlantic City. We still not knowing. But, uh, but again... With a feeling, my God, he couldn't act like this if he's really going to resign. But I didn't know.
9: Chairman McCormick,
2: My fellow Americans, I accept your nomination. My close? My long time, my trusted colleague, Senator Hubert Umpire of Minnesota.
0: Now, folks, these are Democrats. These are Lyndon Johnson's people that are talking about these issues and their concerns about his illness or that he may be ill. But here is George Reedy who's going to tell you something else about him that you've got to realize when you're listening in on these phone calls and it's pretty blunt. Johnson was very good
6: uh, when it came to deceiving people that, um, let's say other politicians or businessmen, people of that character, but the press he never really deceived. If anything, his efforts to, proceed the pre- to uh, deceive the press made the press treat him worse than it would have treated him if he hadn't tried to deceive them. I tried to explain that to him, but he could never see it. When
3: the President of the United States leans over you at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, he often stayed up late with us, had a couple of scotches, and uh, his sweat on him brow and said hey, to you know dick that the three television networks are communist control you began to doubt you said something's going on here that's much more serious than just eccentricity it wasn't that that particular statement was crazy it was the whole behavior continual behavior you can't say mr president you're crazy and he wasn't crazy what he was he had these he had these kind of paranoid fantasies And the rest of the time, he was
9: perfectly capable of handling himself and handling the job. His staff had watched the president behind closed doors. And while they recognized his legislative greatness, they were growing increasingly concerned by the president's erratic behavior. Senior White House assistant Richard Goodwin had started keeping a diary detailing any turbulent White House. Here, he describes a meeting with Bill Moyers, one of Johnson's most trusted advisors. It has been a wild and unbelievable week dinner with Bill and his assistant
3: and another long discussion of Johnson in which we agreed on his paranoid condition. I asked Bill if he thought I should talk to anyone before I left. Perhaps to Bob McNamara. His position might let him keep things from getting out of hand. Bill seemed to think that it might be a good idea, but made me a promise to tell him first before I did anything. He didn't know if we can trust McNamara. I remember one time ago I went down in the White House doctor had his medical library there to look up the books on paranoia and found they'd already been checked out by a white house doctor who was soon there after transfer say, out of the white house um we went to, i went to talk to a psychiatrist friend of mine and asked him what he thought and he sort of agreed that this was the thing and more and i were in
9: pretty complete agreement that johnson was ill Many around Johnson felt Goodwin didn't understand the President. The mood swings and the bombast were all part of the Johnson treatment. To this day, Goodwin feels he was right to have remained silent, and that after all, no one would have believed him. If you said that publicly, you would
3: have... I mean, Johnson would have just gotten up and said, those poor boys, they've just been working too hard. They've been sitting there and working every day and night, trying to serve their country. just got to be too much for them. I know how they feel. Sometimes I feel that way myself. I think the best thing to do for me to give them a little sister, get them off to a nice mental institution where they could recover. And you know what everyone has said, isn't that wonderful?
0: Now, the stories that they're talking about happened in 1964 at the height of his prestige. Now, listen to his folks as you get into the war and he is stuck in this war and can't get out now his career's crumbling he's 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 had to give up the presidency basically and he's in this eight-month period from march on where he is now a lame duck president and he is uh, spending all of his time trying to figure out a way to win this war or at least get us out of it before he leaves office and robert kennedy gets killed martin luther king jr gets killed uh, you know, you've got disarray at the conventions uh, in, in for the Democrats in Chicago. Uh, now Richard Nixon's on the rise, and he's got a big lead, and he's and he's coming in to win. This guy's got a lot of stress on him, and they've already talking about what happens when he's got stress on him, about maybe he's manic-depressive or at least ill. Enough so that you got people checking out library books at the, in the White House library trying to figure it out. And here's the Chenault affair at the very last second of this entire thing. You need to remember that when you start listening. And, you, and when we get into the next, our next episode, you're not going to get a snippet of these tapes the way other historians and TV broadcasts are doing it. You're going to get to listen to them all the way through.
6: Around midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, the casualty reports would start coming in. He would wake up automatically and call the situation room or sometimes wander down there where you could get the direct figures. And the men became haunted by it. We were working, it was around 9.30 at night, and suddenly the president came into the room and we all stood up and he said, uh, a very strange thing. He said, where are you sitting he had never asked that question before he would sit down in any chair that he wanted to and we would (laughs) we would reseat ourselves to accommodate where he was sitting but uh we found a seat for him and he sat down and he just looked like sunk and he said i don't know what to do if i put in more boys there'll be more killing if i take out boys there'll be more killing anything i do there's going to be more killing. And he just sat there and then he got up and left.
11: The presidency became a burden that each day became more difficult to bear.
6: The furrows in the face were deeper. The eyes were sadder. And it was... uh, almost visibly apparent that
11: this war was breaking this extraordinary formidable man who had never been broken before
9: with the turning of the country against him his entrapment in the war his inability to win it without simply wiping vietnam off the map i thought johnson had become somewhat unstable
0: Finally, I want to let you listen to a man named Elliot Janeway. He is an economist but a very close personal friend of the Johnson family. He was in the room when Robert F. Kennedy met with John Connolly and Lyndon Johnson trying to get Lyndon Johnson off the ticket in 1963 at the uh, or 1960 during the convention. Uh, he knew Johnson very, very well, and this was his assessment of President Johnson toward the end of 1968 from the documentary LBJ from the American Experience
6: on PBS. Always paranoid, always insecure. His insecurity had grown into a disease and the, the insecurity was asserting itself in proclamations and aspersions.
2: We seek not victory of conquest, But we do seek the triumph of justice.